Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Nathaniel Matteo Ball, who's Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Vermont. Her research focuses on the effect of tax reforms, optimal taxation, and consumer behavior. Welcome, Nathaniel. Thank you for inviting me. I probably mispronounced your last name, but uh, that's, that's the best I could do. That's <laughs> totally fine. Thank you for trying. <laughs> So, so you have very interesting research that you've been doing for a few years now. Mm-hmm. And I find this extremely interesting because I do some work, as I mentioned, in uh, healthcare. So in primary care, for example, we look at hypertension, type 2 diabetes, COPD, and CHF. Um, probably about, you know, 60, 65% of our healthcare spent in the U.S., over $4.5 trillion. And we find significant relationships in the EMR, electronic medical record data, mm-hmm. that is related to obesity, BMI, A1C, which is, uh, as you know, is uh, is, is uh, leading to uh, diabetes. So, yes. so I want to start with your sort of uh, overarching paper here um, mm-hmm. from 2020. We are what we eat obesity, income, and social comparisons. Mm-hmm. You said the empirical evidence of non-monotone relation between income and obesity is not well explained. We build a theoretical model combining income inequality and social comparisons to explain the link between income and obesity and study tax policy implications for fighting obesity. Obesity. As, as, as you have well explained here, has been a big problem, not only for the U.S., but for the world. And as we have 200 different countries and different uh, states of development, let's say, in terms of per capita income, um, there is a huge sort of worldwide policy question here, right? So obesity appears to be a bad thing. <laughs> yes. to me. So, so, so what do you find from this paper? Okay, so first of all, you're absolutely right to underline that obesity is associated with a number of serious health conditions, such as uh, hypertension, dyslipidemia, type 2 diabetes, coronary heart disease, and some cancers. Um, There are in the US about 300,000 deaths per year that are attributable to obesity. And uh, some studies indicate that uh, obesity is the second largest cause of preventable death in the US after tobacco. So um, 
we know that it imposes enormous uh, healthcare costs, not only for individuals, obese individuals tend to spend uh, an additional 42% on healthcare costs compared to non-obese, but it's also for economists uh, an important issue because obesity has externalities, so uh, it imposes social costs. Uh, these are estimated to be up to $210 billion per year in the US. And so what it means is that if it costs more to take care of uh, obese people because of all the um, health conditions that are associated to obesity, then non-obese individuals face higher healthcare costs in the form of higher healthcare premiums or higher taxes that fund programs such as Medicare or Medicaid. So yeah, it's it's really interesting, Nathalie. So Natalie, this is really interesting. So um, so when we look at the data, I mean we can see BMI. Mm-hmm. And so so it's a very crude comparison. We can we can see A1C, which is sort of a proxy for diabetes, mm-hmm. uh, type two diabetes. Uh, but BMI doesn't seem to have that much information compared to A1C. So the so the so the real sort of a nagging question is: Are the genetic differences among us? Uh, some of us could be carrying high BMI and not have not have a problem, and, and others cannot. Um, so 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 what 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 do you think about that? Well, that's that's an interesting point. So that's true that it's challenging to to have um, really perfect measures of obesity. So we but overall what we see is that the the question of um, obesity and health. Uh, or the connection between income and obesity, it's been measured many different ways. So uh, some studies look into the BMI, otherwise look um, uh, look in more depth into, uh, for example, adiposity. You know, they want to, to make sure that, of course, some people have a higher BMI because they have more muscles and other because they have more fat. So there are some challenges of this nature, but overall, it's really well documented that uh, obese people, even if it's an imperfect measure, even if there are some differences in genetics uh, or muscle uh, uh, muscle mass, obese people have shorter lives and greater uh, uh, and spend a greater proportion of their lives with cardiovascular disease than healthy lives. Uh, there's a um, an important study in the Journal of Amer- uh, the American Medical Association of Cardiology in 2018 that debunked this idea that there was an maybe an obesity paradox that some of the past literature had subjected had suggested uh, the obesity paradox was basically s- some studies stating that people um, may be overweight or obese but may live longer. But in fact, it doesn't seem to be the case. These studies most likely uh, were uh, biased, uh, didn't didn't have really reliable methodologies. And so so it seemed pretty well established uh, that, you know, obesity, even measuring it imperfectly, even accounting for genetic differences, it causes a lot of conditions. And I think, you know, I mean, one one simple observation is that people who are obese spend more money on healthcare. Yes. And that, you know, that that is hard to to get around. That's pretty solid piece of evidence in in my opinion. So so that's true that part of the of the the research I've done have focused on trying to to explain the link between income and obesity, because there's this uh, there there are not many studies that studied the link between income and obesity. So in rich countries like the U.S., um, obesity tends to be concentrated among the poorest people in society. So especially. Uh, Poor women are heavier on average than middle-income women and rich women. 
And for men, uh, there is more obesity among middle income men than low income men and high income men. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's quite interesting. Yeah? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and generally speaking, uh, studies tend to show that in rich countries, there tend to be a negative correlation between obesity and income. It's really a problem concentrated on the poorest. But if you look at poor countries, uh, developing countries, you have the opposite situation. It's uh, the richest people who have the higher rates of obesity prevalence. And among middle income countries, it's, it's not very clear what's going on. So what seems to come up from empirical studies is that the link between income and obesity is a positive correlation. So the richer you are, the more obese you are in poor countries. But then this link changes with economic development. And in rich countries, the poorer you are, the heavier you are. So uh, my co-author, Ronald Bender, and I um, try to, to provide some kind of um, rationalization of explanation for these empirical observations. It had not really been, been done before. Uh, and so what, what, we, what we thought of looking into was the fact that, you know, people's preferences tend to change in over over time they tend to change as economies develop uh, this idea is not new in itself it was grounded in uh, the work of several uh, famous uh, sociologists <laughs> uh, so one of them was bourdieu a french sociologist uh, who was explaining that as we become um, wealthier uh, we tend to change our tests. So when we are poorer, we maybe value more quantity. And with respect to food, that would be, you know, uh, having our, our basic uh, nutritional needs uh, met. And when we become richer, uh, people's tastes tend to change toward quality. And so, and, and this change in, in taste is connected to, um, some peer effects and how we position ourselves in society mm. and um and so basically what we 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 found that idea relevant because there is plenty of evidence that to some extent uh, what we eat uh you know the the post we, when we post about uh, what we eat on facebook we don't post about a bag of potato chips, right? We post uh, uh, about a fancy, um, fancy dinner, uh, <laughs> wonderful uh, organic uh, tomatoes. So uh, basically, there there is really a lot of evidence, uh, not only in sociology but also in the empirical economics literature, that what what we choose to eat. Uh, because eating also is a, is a very social activity. Uh, what we choose to eat is influenced by, by what others eat. And it is, it has, to some extent, it is a signal of status. And yeah. so we've built a model in which individual preferences um, change as they become wealthier. Uh, and as people become wealthier, they, they, they basically um, start developing a more uh, a, a stronger preference for low calorie um, uh, expensive foods compared to high calorie uh, uh, cheap junk food and and this this model that we've built help under help us understand help explain in fact this um, changing income obesity link over time and across uh, cross sections of populations in poor and rich countries yeah, so, I mean, there are multiple interesting things here. One is, so suppose you rewind time back, Homo mm -hmm. sapien history. Um, I would imagine we had very little to eat, uh, 100,000, 200,000 years ago. Maybe we had one meal mm -hmm. um, per day. Um, and and so there's that sort of a thing to think about, right? So the, the homo, sapien, homo sapien genes are really trained to expect food maybe once a day. Mm -hmm. 
And then we got sort of the agricultural revolution, maybe 5,000, just a very, very short period of time. We started eating a lot of, lot of stuff. Um, our bodies are not really designed uh, to take all that, all that stuff. Yeah. And the richer we've, we're becoming, yeah. so we always have this positive income effect that takes place and that makes us eat more. And that's valid for, for all countries. So basically, the, the richer we get, the more things we buy. We buy more of everything and we buy more food. Also because food has become relatively cheaper over time compared to other goods. And junk food has become even relatively cheaper to low calorie food. So the, the fact that you know we we <laughs> over over the, the, the centuries or the millenniums we've become you know we've we've managed to 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 have higher incomes, have easier access to food, um, that's a positive effect that that explains that as people get richer, they tend to be heavier on average. But then what we observe is that at the same time, there's a change in tastes that take place that can explain that at some point we have this change in correlation between income and obesity from obesity being uh, positively correlated to income to negatively correlated so to income. This is sort of the Kuznets curve that you exactly. talked about, right? Um, yes. It's, um, it's really interesting. So. I mean, it makes a lot of intuitive sense in this, um, you know, when when you start from zero, mm -hmm. um, you when you have something to eat, you eat. And at some point you stop eating. Well, you don't necessarily stop eating, but you eat different things, let's say. Mm -hmm. And the curve uh, sort of uh, sort of an inverted U-shaped U curve. Uh, goes down, yeah. So there's, you know, there's also other other portions of the, in fact, of the 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 literature in nutrition that supports uh, supports this idea. So in another paper that I wrote uh, called the elusive link between income and obesity, I explained that there's a whole literature called the literature on nutrition transition that looks into dietary changes that go with economic development. And so what we observe is that the richer countries are, the higher the fat intake in diets. So people get out of famine uh, and starvation when they are, have a high enough income to put more fat in their diet. And, and this is really well documented. It's, these are trends that have been documented everywhere in the world. Uh, an example for uh, there was a, a study in the Philippines that showed that people increased fat in their diet when they could start um, eating out and eating fried food. And as the economy developed, they ate more and more fat. Um, and, and so we see that happening. And at the same time, we see shifts in the way people eat in rich countries uh, and among the, the richer in the rich countries, we see that people eat more whole grain, uh, fresh uh, vegetables. We observe that in the US and in Norway. So we have this, um, I would say, secular trends of more in uh, higher income, more fat in the diet, Every, everybody on average gets heavier, but we have also uh, changes in preferences that, that, that counteract that and that explain that at some point we may have a Kuznets curve where maybe average body weight start decreasing and at least we see an, an inverse correlation between income and obesity uh, in rich countries. Yeah, I mean, I know that you have done not theoretical work around this, uh... So, so income, I mean, a lot of this is sort of intuitive in some sense. So if you start from zero, as your income increases, you'll eat more. Yes. And at some point you say, I shouldn't be eating that much. Well, <laughs> and what's out the problems? Once yeah. you're out of starvation, your dietary needs are met, 
and and you're in a society where you know with higher well when you are in a higher income category society is such that you 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 value more uh, quality more refined food um, uh, the, you have social interactions with other that make you you know value different things um, that that's part of what's happening in our opinion yeah so I, I think you, you talk about this in uh, another paper, but I want to get your perspective on this. So, mm -hmm. you know, weight loss programs, for instance, uh, I always felt that the human body is a physical system. Calories in, calories out, you get stuff built up <laughs> that's <laughs> left over. So um, a human's autonomous systems, the brain gets 20% of the energy. We, we consume about 2000 calories if we sit on the couch all day. And if you go on a treadmill 18 hours, you can build, you can burn about 400 calories. So in the grand scheme of things, it's very little that you can, you can affect by exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, if you put enough calories into the system, it is going to show up somewhere. It, it's physics. It's not biology or chemistry anymore. It's physics. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, there's the widely accepted uh, equation uh, that's widely accepted by nutritionists and dietitians which is called the Schofield equation, which basically, basically states, states your weight gain represents your net calorie intake, calorie intake minus calorie expenditure. And you're right that calorie expenditure matters, but calorie intake matters even more to explain the rise in obesity. And you, you summarized it uh, pretty easily. And I mean, it's pretty easy to gain weight or lose weight, uh, you know, by eating too much or starving yourself. You have to spend a lot of time on the treadmill to lose a few pounds. So, um, so that's why that, I think it's yeah. relevant to to try understand better how people make decisions and what what can be done to change the environment in which they make decisions with policy adequate policy making. Yeah, so, so Natalie, so is that well understood in the sense that there's a big exercise industry mm -hmm. um, and many of them sell their products to, to, you know, to sort of get in shape, they say, uh, reduce weight. Mm -hmm. um, and you spend six hours on a treadmill and you go eat a hamburger, that's the end of it. I mean, you just, <laughs> you, you, you just spend 300 calories that's and true. then you took in 400 calories, right? So is, that, is this a well-understood phenomenon? So what I can say is that in the, in the studies that look into the, the reasons why obesity has risen, uh, clearly the increase in calorie intake is the number one responsible factor. Uh, now, the fact that, you know, instead of um, working in uh, physically strenuous jobs, we spend a lot of time sitting at a desk, it also matters. And with COVID uh, and the fact that so many people worked from home and, you know, we, we know that the lack of physical activity clearly plays a role, but it doesn't seem to be the number one factor in explaining the rise in obesity. So that's why we, we focused on on the food consumption so far. Yes, yeah, so I, I want to go into that a little bit deeper. So, so you, you look at income mm -hmm. um, as sort of a driving factor for obesity, mm -hmm. and it is sort of a, there's a conflicting set of uh, factors there, right? Mm -hmm. So, if you have zero income, you have nothing to eat, you lose a lot of weight. <laughs> I just is putting it bluntly. Yes. Um, if you have some income, mm -hmm. then you have a, an option to select what types of food you want to eat. Exactly. And if, if you have limited income, then you don't have too many options in some ways, right? So is that what's driving this phenomenon? 
Well, uh, you know the the. The, the the basic approach in in economic uh, in economics is to say well people you know they tend to make choices they tend to act in their best interest with facing a number of constraints and um, uh, having access to some types certain information so I'm not saying that we always are perfectly informed or things like that but Basically, we tend to ask to act in our best interests, accounting for constraints such as there's a limited budget to buy food. And so in, in, in a pretty, you know, a straightforward environment like that, uh, in one of my articles uh, uh, called Could Obesity Be Contagious? Um, I, and, and another article also, the the, the, the hand-to-mouth consumption yeah. and consciousness. Yeah. I, I show that in fact, uh, as long as um, the relative cost of high-calorie food is less than the relative energy density of high-calorie food, we're, we're bound to, to gain weight. Yeah. So basically, uh, we we are we are we, we are acting as making the best choices we can in the in the sense that that we like to eat food, but we don't like to gain weight. Okay, so in terms of preferences, we are trying to balance um, our taste and and willingness to to eat against the the backlash, which is weight gain. So we. We're trying to make the best choice we can to satisfy these preferences, accounting for our budget constraints. And in that environment, basically, the, the model has a pretty straightforward um, and, and robust result, which is to say, well, if, if you are in an environment where the cost of low calorie food is um, the cost of low calorie food is is uh, is really low compared to high calorie food. And, and this relative cost of low calorie food is less than its relative energy density, you're going to gain weight. So yeah, yeah, yeah. that's, that's, uh, that's one, um, one important element. So, so let, let me see if I understand this, uh, Natalie. So, um, so you consider a human system as sort of a physical system. Calories in, calories out, whatever is remaining is going to create weight. <laughs> I mean, we can escape that, that's physics. Um, and then the question is, what do you put in, what do you take out? And what you put in is a function of income, as you argue in many of these papers. Mm -hmm. And it's a function of two things, right? It's, it's a function of what's available. 100,000 years ago in African savannah, nothing was available. Mm -hmm. So you have to go hunt for it. Um, in uh, in the U.S. and EU today, you have hamburgers, you know, all sorts of things uh, that is available. That is, some of them are very cheap, mm -hmm. and so the decisions that humans make in the modern savanna, so to speak, mm -hmm. are very different, right? I mean, that is what's causing this problem. Uh, well, I think that it's it's part of it. You know, the we we make. We make choices. I, I mean, part of part of the problem of obesity is, is, I would say, an environmental problem, right? We are making choices in in a, in an environment we're confronted with, and the environment we're confronted with, high well, food is generally abundant, relatively cheap, and especially high calorie food is relatively cheap, um, and and so. And so basically that that is a very important element why we are gaining weight. Now, um, what what there are other factors also that matter, uh, like, you know, of course, how much money we have to spend, uh, what our friends eat. Um, uh, so an, a number of factors, but 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 relative prices really matter and and that's why economists have been working for for years and including myself on trying to explore what policies 
could could matter and whether uh, taxing junk food, for example, or subsidizing uh, lettuce uh, would uh, potentially be uh, a way to address obesity. To, you know, if, if low calorie food, and it is, uh, if, if the cost, the relatively low cost, sorry, the relatively low cost of high calorie food is driving obesity, then one option is to make uh, high calorie food relatively more expensive. <clears throat> and we can potentially do this with junk food taxes. Right. So, so if you go to all the other side of this policy question, I, I have no opinions here. Uh, one could argue that maybe if you eat a lot and you get obese, let's say, and you get to hypertension, type 2 diabetes, COPD, CHF, variety of uh, diseases, then you could be held responsible um, for uh, taking care of those diseases, right? So, so they could, they, I mean, they could be an incentive model, they could be disincentive model in some ways, um, because it seems like we are a little bit further away from the incentive model implementation. We have very high obesity in the US. I'm just looking at it from a US perspective. Um, what do we do now? To, to bring the system back to normality, yeah. Okay, so what, what you're suggesting, I think it's it's something really hard to, to implement because what, I mean, let's say, let's say we, so basically to, to eliminate externalities relate, related to obesity, you would like to have people internalize the externality, so pay fully the cost associated to some decisions they made relate, related to food consumption. But then it means that, you know, you, you would have to consider doing this for anybody who, who for example, smokes, uh, then they have to pay for lung cancer treatment or things like that. And I, I'm not sure it would be the right approach because also you could say, well, someone became obese maybe because of uh, factors such as genetic factors or extreme stress in their lives they had no control of. So it's a bit, I think, difficult to implement and also probably would um, would start opening, uh, you know, a can of worms with respect to discrimination uh, laws and things like that. I think uh, there are other things we can do to address obesity. So one thing that has been barely explored, in, in, it seems to me, are junk food taxes. About two-thirds of the states have implemented uh, taxes on soda, uh, yeah. but these taxes are ridiculously low. They are, like, I think, on average, less than 5%. So imagine... You, whether you buy a can of Arizona uh, iced tea for $1 or $1, <laughs> it's not going to break the bank, right? It's, it's, it doesn't seem to be a serious approach to, uh, to using junk food taxes. So I think they, are, they, they have not been implemented properly. Uh, what studies tend to show is that we would need at least a 20% tax to start st seeing effects and the tax should be uh, broadly applied. You don't want just to tax soda, but maybe, you know, uh, sugar sweetened beverages in general, for example. So first of all, I would, I, I, I would uh, you know, I would like to see junk food taxes implemented on a broader scale more seriously before we throw, throw them away as an unviable option. No, no uh, I, I, I like that a lot. So I'm a big proponent of consumption taxes and I haven't been really thinking about um, you know, food, um, but it is sort of a, if you s sort of internalize all the societal costs that come with bad food, let's say, um, then um, if you have the right tax regime, 
on that bad, then society will improve from there, right? So, uh, but but can we go out and, I mean, I think we can. I mean, we have a lot of data now. We, we could actually demonstrably show if you, if you don't consume a healthy food diet, your chance of uh, progressing into hypertension, type 2 diabetes, COPD is very high, you know? And we have this COVID-19 thing going on now, mm-hmm. and your chance of dying is a lot higher, <laughs> a lot higher uh, yeah. if you don't do that. So Issue for yeah. that. Yes, yeah, so, yes, I think overall, you know, there's, a, there's still um, an argument that's pretty strong in favor of junk food taxes. I haven't seen a serious implementation of them. Arguments against, I feel, are not very convincing. So the argument, I, I think sometimes people see, imagine that junk food taxes are almost like a strict regulation that will prevent them from drinking any soda, you know? And that is not what it is. In fact, a junk food tax simply is going to uh, or, or a tax on soda is simply something that would uh, result in a lower consumption. So you don't you don't prevent people from anything. You just make them drink or eat more reasonable portion ultimately if when this works. And the guy who pays ten bucks for that big can of soda will yes. still will still do it. Yes, it, absolutely. It, it, <laughs> But what, what we know, I think what's what's convincing is that, for example, uh, taxes on cigarettes, they resulted in reduction of cigarette consumption. And cigarette is super addictive. Nicotine is super addictive. Uh, so, so, I mean, there's a chance that, that this would work pretty well on, on food. The, the other argument against that, that uh, I hear is that um, junk food taxes would be unfair and really affect negatively the well-being of lower income categories. So with respect to this, I think it's uh, it's not a, a very good assessment of well-being that I've seen in, in papers stating that, because well-being is, is made of how much you consume and you may like to consume junk food. I mean, I, I like potato chips too, you know, uh, but it's also a, a question of how healthy you are. And so you can't you can't uh, you can't just say, well, people will be miserable if they don't eat as many potato chips as they want. You have to to realize that also they may eat a bit less potato chips, but maybe also healthier. And so I think there's a lot also to gain in terms of well-being. So that's why I'm not very convinced by this type of argument. And another option is that we could also potentially offset junk food taxes with subsidies to healthy food like lettuce or fresh fruits and vegetables. But on the subsidy side, both what I've done with my co-author Ronald Wendner and other things I've seen in the literature, it's not convincing that it would um, help with obesity because subsidies have a positive income effect. And if you have a positive income effect, people tend to eat more and gain weight. So it's not sure that it would work so well. Yeah, I mean, I I had advocated before that an advanced society will send healthy food to Mm -hmm. everybody. Um, Because if you you get a population healthy, The downstream consequences of that as very, very high net NPV, right? So, but we don't have an advanced society. We get, we are sort of a mediocre. Uh, so, so I, I, I want to touch on. So, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, I just want to say we're not cavemen, but we're we're still pretty primitive <laughs> so far. <laughs> but I want to touch on one thing that you mentioned in one of these papers, and that is, you say, could obesity be contagious? Mm-hmm. Social influence, food and consumption behavior. So I found this very interesting. Um, and so you you take social cues to to make behavior modifications. Yes. So and society forces you in some sense to do some things, right? Yeah. Well, so yes, eating is is uh, 
you know, we are social animals, right? And eating is part of uh, social activities, uh, the social activities that we do. And there and social interactions have been shown in the empirical literature to to influence our own uh, body weight reference. Uh, our food consumption behavior and our body weight outcomes. So, for example, there was a study in France that showed that um, uh, social norms and the um, average body mass index influence our ideal body mass index, which influences our food consumption. Um, and there are lots of studies that also show that um, our perceptions of overweight and dieting um, are influenced by a person's relative BMI rather than absolute BMI. So all that is just to, to, to give you a couple studies in you know a larger number of studies that basically our social interactions influence the way we behave, but it influences the norms we refer to, which itself influences our behavior. Yeah. And so in economics, uh, initially there's a, a framework that describes our food consumption choices as a, a pure rational choice um, where people basically perfectly count calories and perfectly assess their mortality risk. And I I thought that we should look into what happens if we build a model that accounts for social interactions and social norms. Uh, so our, our assessment of mortality, we know that it is influenced by others and that we systematically tend to understate it. So, for example, people who smoke think they have a um, uh, lower uh, mortality risk than others who smoke as well. People who overeat think they have lower mortality risk than others who, 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 have, who, who have the same bad behavior for their health. We always tend to understate the risk for ourselves, whereas we recognize it for others. So in, in, the, in the model I built, I introduced the, the fact that the that 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 this type of of assessment we, we may have the wrong assessment about our own mortality risk mm -hmm. and and because we we see society where everybody is obese and overeats and the second thing is we also because everybody is heavier and heavier and overeats we also tend to uh underestimate our net calorie intake. And that is consistent with studies that show that pretty much we consistently understate our net calorie intake. So there was a study in, um, in Great Britain that showed that uh, almost 80% of people uh, understate the net calorie intake systematically, and they understated by 20%. Mm. So, so basically, these social interactions, I think, influence our our decision making in the way we appreciate. Basically, we 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 count for calories. We are we are less calorie conscious as a result of social interaction, and we understate the effect on our own health. And the yeah. problem is when when the when the social norm becomes a heavier and heavier body weight, which has been the, the case over time, we. We we have a syst systematically over and over a misassessment of how we should eat that drives us to being obese, basically. Yeah, so Natalie, it seems like a sort of a runaway train problem here, right? So if you if everybody's sort of trying to get to the average, so to speak, mm -hmm. and the average is going positively in one direction. Mm -hmm. You would ultimately get to, you know, average is, average keeps increasing. So you say when when I go out, yeah. I look at people, and I'm talking about obesity now, and they say, well, I'm not better than those guys, so I can eat a little bit more. 
Uh, I'm just making the simplest take. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it keeps going up in some ways, right? Is that, is that what you find? That's exact. That's exactly it. And um, and so and so we we see that social norms have changed over time. So one one striking example that I give at the beginning of the paper is the the change in clothing size labels. So hmm. in, um, nowadays, a, a woman who has a waist of uh, 25 and a half inch wears a size zero. And in 1958, that corresponded to a size 12. <laughs> so, so basically, you know, body norms have been changing toward being heavier and heavier. And I think with these norms changing, well, then it becomes more normal to eat large portions of food. So that's one thing. And the other thing is, because we have this uh, optimism bias, uh, we we eat more, uh, even more so willingly that we don't really realize it's going to kill us. <laughs> so, so that's all. All that all that creates a, a dynamic that that has contributed that contributes to explaining the rise in obesity, because the rise in obesity. So it's connected to the rise in income. It's connected to the. Um, decrease in the relative cost of uh, junk food, but that doesn't explain everything. So there are all other aspects of, I think, social dynamics that basically yeah. uh, are captured in, in my model and help uh, help explain why obesity continues to rise, for example, whereas um, the, the decline in, in the cost of junk food has leveled off since the 1990s and cannot really explain. The, the, yeah. the recent price. So I, I don't know if we looked into this. Um, and so um, if there are no incentives in the system to be healthy, mm -hmm. which is the case in the US, you know, we have providers, physicians, uh, payers, patients, and manufacturers. Need, none of these four cohorts of people have any incentive to make people healthy. So that's a system that we have today in in countries i don't know if these exist i grew up in india i i don't know what the situation is there now the insurance industry wasn't very well developed okay. and so in some sense you had an incentive to to keep yourself safe in some ways right because you cannot really push the cost out to somebody else at a later time um so have you looked into sort of the country specific? I don't know about the situation in Canada or, or France or whatever. Yeah. So if you look at um, at data, basically every on every continent in the world, you've had a rise in obesity uh, and in India as well. Actually, I gave a talk uh, last week in India and I, I this is a I took the, the opportunity to look at data on obesity. So obesity is rising um, and, and basically uh, it's rising, especially um, among women. And uh, the, com the, 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 the sum of um, basically overweight and obese women are going to represent there's going to be more than 50% of women overweight or obese by 2040 in India. And I think for men, it's 40 or 45%. Mm. So, and there's more, um, more uh, uh, a stronger rise in obesity in, um, in uh, urban versus rural areas, I think as well. So, um, so it's, it's a, it's a, problem that that is happening all over the world you're right to say that the the incentives are, are different depending on you know taxes subsidies healthcare systems that are in place but uh, it seems that the you know when countries become richer um, they 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 tend to face this problem more and more uh, there is now uh, in the world, um, I had this striking, this striking figure. And uh, in the world, 
The majority of the world population now lives in countries where being overweight or obese kills more people than being underweight. Mm. So, so it's a problem that's, you know, increasing and and basically part, part well, this problem with others threatens the, the sustainability of our healthcare system. If we want healthcare system such as, you know, the one in the US, uh, well, or, you know, or, or other countries, but basically a system where individuals are part of a pool of insurance uh, and and do not pay for and, and where their healthcare costs represent the cost of the average of the pool of insurance, whether you have a public healthcare system like in France or Canada or private health insurance systems with large pool of insurance like in the US. Right. So, so it seems to me that for 100,000 years, they didn't have enough to eat. Now they're eating ourselves to death. Um, that, that is really what's happening, right? Um, yeah, I think there might be other things as well that I started uh, working on. And uh, and it seems to me that so an, another thing that well, that can uh, explain as not, uh, for example, the discrepancies we see between um, poor people in the US and rich people with respect to obesity might also be related to stress and coping mechanisms. Yeah, that's what I want to go into one of your later papers. So it's very topical. Economic stress and body weight during the COVID-19 pandemic. You mm -hmm. say COVID-19 pandemic has caused income loss for many households, mm -hmm. disrupting food consumption patterns and contributing to weight loss for some and weight gain for others. So you say I built a dynamic theoretical model that explains those empirical facts. The novelty of this paper is to incorporate stress caused by a lower than ideal income, which is economic stress, in a model of optimal intertemporal food consumption decisions made by a rational eater. So, so COVID-19 is sort of an interesting experiment, right? Uh, many households, uh, had significant income loss, mm -hmm. and um, and so the decisions that we made pre-COVID-19 on how to eat, I would imagine substantially changed post, right? Is that what you're finding? Uh, yes, so basically, you know, clearly, so COVID-19 has resulted in income loss for people and for some, the income loss has been so significant that it has resulted in food insecurity and weight loss. And for others, um, what happened is that they stayed at home, have no, didn't exercise at all, uh, were very sedentary. That also can explain that some people gained weight. But that's not all because COVID has also caused an enormous amount of, of stress. And, and part of this stress is what I call economic stress. So basically my motivation there was to, to connect the medical literature with the economics literature, because in the medical literature, it's a well-established fact that stress causes obesity. It's, it seems to be really well-established. And in the economics literature, we, we know that people who have a lower income in rich countries tend to be more obese. So, uh, so, so my point in this paper is to say, well, when you you have an income that's lower than what you're used to or what you desire, or you lose income because of COVID, that causes a lot of stress. And yeah. then, with stress come coping mechanisms, and we have a coping mechanism that can help us alleviate stress, it's to eat high, highly fat or sugary food. And so basically in my model, I incorporate the, the fact that 
stress can be caused by a trigger which is income loss and and people to some extent can cope <laughs> offset this 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 uh this shock uh by eating more but there's a limit to how much how much they can do that because they don't want that because if they're overweight they 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 also uh, don't don't like being overweight so they have to also balance the you know their 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 stress level with their desire for uh junk food and their uh and and the fact that being overweight becomes really uh you know un unpleasant or it's something that they're not they don't want so basically the the idea here is to say on the one hand you have um the negative income effect that could uh, explain that people lose weight uh but on the other hand you have the stress uh effects and stress can also make people eat more and so these two effects compete and yeah. And if if the stress effects dominate, people will gain weight. If the income effects, negative income effects dominate, people will lose weight. So the model helps capture this and these two types of outcomes. And the conflicting effects. So so let me ask you sort of a, a loaded question. Um, so from a policy perspective, uh, would you be better off in a shock? in economic shock like COVID-19, would it be better off sending people good food rather than money? So I, I don't know about that. Uh, if you send them money, I mean, you could imagine things two ways, okay? So you send them money, maybe you will alleviate the stress call, caused by the uh, loss of income and they won't do the coping mechanism and don't they won't overeat and basically um, that's one way to to alleviate stress and overeating and if you if you send them healthy food well may, maybe that will matter uh, to to alleviate the shock it's it's possible. I don't know which one which one is better. You know, if you really want only to, maybe if you care only about the the, the health and obesity question, you want to send them healthy food. If you care about other other aspects of of uh, of their stress related to income loss, you know, so maybe because of income loss they they can't buy the food that they they need but maybe also they can't pay their rent or their telephone bill then then in one case maybe it's better to give them extra income in the other it's better to give them healthy food yeah That's i mean if if i were if i were the king of the us and look at the data and i'd say 20% of my my expenditures or is on healthcare. Mm -hmm. Ten to fifteen percent on crime. Um, and so, if I were to make the country better, I have to really focus on these two <laughs> these two things. I mean, mm -hmm. if I don't get these two things right, it doesn't matter um, what's going to happen in the future, right? So, so, so in a shock, the question would be, what the right I mean, I'm still unclear what the, the optimum policy might be for the country. Yeah. yeah. I I'm not I'm not sure either. Uh, I haven't looked into into this special specifically. It's a complex question, you know. With uh, with COVID, uh, I mean, yeah, what to do in this context? It's uh, I don't think we have defined really what the optimal policy would be in in that context you know we 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 want to to shorten the length of the of the pandemic to uh, to 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 prevent very very uh, negative economic effects and and also negative effects on our healthcare system uh, how to how to achieve um, 
how to achieve uh, the, the best outcome, I'm not sure. It's still an yeah. open question. I mean, in the US, we have a group of people who want to send people money. Mm -hmm. There's a group of people who don't want to send people money. Mm -hmm. that's, that's what we have in, in the US politics. <laughs> Some people want to send them a bunch of money. Some okay. people don't want to send them any money. Uh, yeah. And neither neither of these people seem to understand sort of how people live and what the what the sort of the long term effects of stress, as you say in this paper, um, behavioral health issues that lead into physical issues later, obesity that has variety of physical issues. Um, so what we have in the U.S. is we don't have politicians who don't really have a good understanding. Yeah, I think they don't listen. The country to, works. Yeah, they don't listen to economists enough. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, on on, I think it's it's really um, we we tend to see the same pattern among uh, policy politicians. Uh, on the left, uh, they they want to give people a lot of money. Generally speaking because they think of the of the, the, the benefits, the consumption smoothing effects, the, the, the positive effects of, you know, helping people with giving them money. And on the right, people are focused on the adverse effects, what we what economists call the moral hazard. Um, so basically, if you give people money, you can also create adverse incentives. And I think the what's what's powerful with economics is that we we have to to build models that account for both effects and try to measure both effects. What are the benefits? What what's what are going to be the benefits and what are going to be the adverse effects? And and for us, we're going to have to to find out how to tailor these programs and you know find the how much, if any, money should be should be uh, distributed uh, to people who lose an income due to the pandemic and for how long and things like that. So, so I think that's basically what, what makes economics uh, interesting is that it forces us to, to be non-ideological and look at uh, the good, the bad and the evil in, in all <laughs> programs and, and try to to design them the, the best we can. But with respect, you know, to um, how to address the obesity crisis and um, how would people respond to, to various programs, the truth is there is still a lot of work uh, to do, you know, and we, we don't have uh, definitive answers that we still we still need to do to do a lot of work, but uh, but I think we we understand a bit better what drives the obesity crisis. We have some ideas about policies with, regarding taxation or uh, education programs that would focus on, um, you know, what's a healthy weight, for example, what's a healthy weight norm. You, there are things like that that we probably could could do that that would help address the the problem. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hope so. Uh, <laughs> well, we're going to have to at some point after when we, I mean, our healthcare system, if we want to 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 maintain it or maybe expand it at some point, if we want to, to make it sustainable, we have to care about the general health of the population. You know, a healthier population is a is a cheaper population to 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 take care of. So, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a little bit off track, uh, but um, so COVID nineteen, um, eighty percent of the deaths are in a cohort of above uh, age sixty five. So. You know, if somebody were to devise a way to save Medicare and be too crass here, mm -hmm. uh, this this would be it, right? Um, and so, you know, what is the, sort of the right policy 
idea here. Um, we have a disease that seems to kill people who are older, fatter, mm -hmm. less healthy. And the rest of the people might say, oh, that's that's OK. I mean, I have, I have heard people say that, <laughs> you know, there's yeah. a there's a senator from Texas who says, yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. let's do more of it. As long as it doesn't affect him directly, I'm sure he's going to be okay with it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, ultimately, this this type of questions, they also boil down to what people want for society. And everybody has a different idea of uh, what's morally acceptable or, or not. And economics uh, does not really have a lot to, to say about that. I think what economics can be used uh, for is a, is a tool once society has decided what goal it wants to reach or uh, then economic models can tell you how to reach that goal with this policy. Uh, but ultimately, you know, yeah, so it's going to be up to society to decide um, what's acceptable or not with respect to COVID. Uh, for example. Yeah, I'm not too optimistic um, <laughs> based on what I see. Um, but uh, but hopefully we'll pull through this and uh, and get better. So this has been great, Nadeo. Uh, thanks so much for spending time with me. It was great talking to you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.